good morning. You take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. This morning, starting in verse 22. And if you are looking at my beautiful blue shirt, it's two words. Trend setter. It's me. But as you're turning there uh, to this last section of this great chapter, and hopefully you're encouraged and hopefully you've learned some, even for me, studying. And you see all that surrounds something you know so well. You think John 3, you think John 3.16, but there is more going on and it's deeper. Even really, we're not going to even, in many ways, touch the depths of the Trinitarian language of the Father and the Son, which he's going to, the, our writer John the Apostle is going to engage again with kind of those same concepts of chapter 1, those first five verses towards the end here. As you, if you understand that, depending on uh, if it is John the Baptist or John the author, we don't have quotations, so not 100% sure. Either way, the point is it's scripture inspired by God and is true. But such a good reminder this morning as we sang together, um, even thinking of the songs, and I'm just so thankful uh, there are great songs to sing, and maybe I don't give enough reasons why we do what we do and why we pick songs that we pick and sing what we sing. We want to sing songs that, of course, are uh, salted with truth, Scripture. We understand as well, a lot of times uh, they come direct quotes from the Psalms, some of the hymns, but a lot of times it's just simply a poetic or artistic expression of God's truth. And I was just standing back here singing along uh, this song, Oh Great God, and you can't help but go John chapter 3. I mean, he's thinking of John chapter 3 when he is writing this song that I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within and had no taste from heaven's joys. Well, he's talking about a unregenerated person, someone who has not been born again, and there's no desire. Why? Because there's no heart that desires the things of God. I have no taste for heaven's joys. But what then? Your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son and gave me endless hope and peace. And even just in those two stanzas, you see so much truth, the truth we've been studying here and that John is being uh, presenting to us over uh, the need for something to happen to us. And yes, there's a response, as we'll see, as he ends in verse 36, as he keeps moving towards a response of belief. And of course, we have to somewhat define the nature of that belief. And it's not simply intellectual assent, which we've talked about and we have seen, but something that we are giving to ourselves wholly, a trust and belief in Christ and his person and in his work. But we are looking this morning at John chapter 3, and we're marching through the gospel of John. Just like we pick songs that are theological and biblical, uh, we are preaching the word week in and week out. Why? Because it is our conviction that there is nothing greater, nothing more important that we can do than to explain and exposit God's word. I don't really have much to offer. Uh, I'm too young to give you much experience, um, but I can give you and explain to you what God has said in his word, which is of utmost value. And by giving attention to every sentence, Every word, and I understand there's maybe a little more to explain in one verse than another. So you're not looking to say, hey, I'm going to spend five minutes on every verse. But by doing that, myself, the preacher, you, are all saying we are submissive to God's word. We're submitting ourselves to scripture. We're not going to just skip over the parts that are uncomfortable. Even sometimes the parts that are harder to understand. But we're demonstrating our conviction that all of God's word, all of scripture is inspired and profitable for us. 
So yes, we're marching along. We're only in the third chapter, but enjoy. And we want to mind the depths that are here. So let's read together John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Knowing that last week, those first 21 verses, referring back to this conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. I think it's important context. But after those things, Jesus and his disciples, they came into the land of Judea, and there was, he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a debate between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who has... He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of what he bears witness, and no one receives his witness. He who has received his last, his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Father, we come now uh, publicly in the way in which we approach your word, reminding ourselves of its power, its power to change lives to the truth, how we think of the beauty, as Scripture says, beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of the gospel or that bring the truth, that we are not submissive to another man, but to the very words that you have inspired here this morning that we can learn from and thereby learn more about you, as we'll see here and we've seen over the last weeks more about our need and who we are, and even in such a succinct way, once we have come to know you and recognize who you are, that we live out our lives in a way that can be described so clearly by John the Baptist here, that for the rest of our existence, this life and the next, this reality of Christ must increase, and we must decrease. Encourage us this morning through that truth, as humbling as it is, because by knowing its truth, we truly know who you have made us to be in living out our purpose, that you created men and women from the beginning to honor and glorify you and you alone. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as you look at this passage, and to me, I ask some questions. And one of the questions I ask as I read this passage is, we've already had John the Baptist introduced. We've already had John the Baptist give his witness. And so there's, for me at least in my Bible, a, a heading, John the Baptist's last witness. Well, why didn't we already have 
this witness. And, and then I asked the question, in what way is he giving a witness here that's different than what he's already given? Because he said, behold, the Lamb of God. He's already recognized who Christ is. He's already told everyone, I'm not him. And it seems that he's saying some similar things here. And when anytime you encounter, I say, similarities in Scripture, you're left with asking those questions of, well, but I know that every bit of Scripture is inspired and purposeful. This isn't just throwaway. This isn't just John doing a little bit of history. And we know that because you get to John 21 and he says that there was many other things that Jesus did. And if you put them in books, the world could not contain them. So none of the story, none of the narrative, none of the history that he communicates is throwaway, but all intentional. And there's so much here that seems repetitive. I think we need to be drawn to in what way is he adding? In what way is he increasing our understanding of the necessity of belief? And that salvation can only come from above. I think one of the first keys to understanding that is understanding that this comes in a context of the conversation of John the Baptist, or excuse me, of Nicodemus. Because in Nicodemus, in that story of you must be born again, you kind of see those three musts. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And verse 30, Jesus must increase. And I, John the Baptist, and everyone else who's ever lived, must decrease. And there's a way in which I think he is pulling it all together in this way, teaching us more about Christ, more about his ministry and the uniqueness of his ministry that you can draw. This is not simply an addition. This is something completely new. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a, another Old Testament scribe explaining things better than those before him. No, he represents something new. He is not simply like the temple where you go to a place and there's a mediation between a priest, but he is the final and he not only is the final high priest, but he is going to be the one who is the sacrifice himself. So we hear from John again, I think, because of this. We're going to hear him say things like, I am not the bridegroom, but only a friend of the bridegroom. And he must increase, but I must decrease. And I think the author, John, out of all the things he could choose to relate and the Spirit could inspire here, he calls John the Baptist back to the stand because there is more to say in light of Nicodemus's conversation. And the flow of the argument is giving this answer that John the Baptist, I think, stands in contrast to Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't respond. He's not a good example here. It seems that he does respond later, but not in this moment in John 3 does he really respond. In fact, he is judged, as it were, because Jesus says, chapter 3, verse 12, if I told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I think John the Baptist is an example of one who understands, recognizes, and believes heavenly things. And he's going to say at the very end, that belief is going to determine one's eternal destiny. Well, look at verse 22 through 26, and we're going to see the background here of the story, this kind of the setting, how it sets up here. And what we see that after this conversation, somewhere in this time frame, and you know it's somewhat chronological because he throws in verse 24, that if you're familiar with the other gospels, which this is written later, that they would go, but 
how can this happen if John the Baptist in every other gospel is already in prison? He just makes sure you know, doesn't want to undercut his reliability, his trustability. He says, I understand, verse 24, that John has not yet been thrown into prison. So this is happening at some point between John the Baptist recognizing Jesus is the Lamb of God and John being thrown into prison. And the context is this question of purification. They're Jesus, his disciples, it seems to be a private time where he is teaching and training them, and they're spending time with him, and they're baptizing. And this creates this issue between John who baptizes and Jesus. And if you look at four, chapter 4, verse 2, you're going to see it's not Jesus, but his disciples, which human nature would say there's good reasons for that. People go back and say, well, Jesus baptized me, um, and they'd misunderstand. And so it's the disciples who are baptizing. But it would seem jealousy, and even maybe some theology questions of, if people are getting baptized again, well, John the Baptist, is there something wrong with your baptism? John the Baptist, is there something wrong with what you are doing? And look, almost said in a throwaway way in verse 26, that this question of purification, everyone, all are coming to him. They say, Rabbi, teacher, he was with you beyond the Jordan. They know that Jesus, you said the Lamb of God, You've borne witness to him. And look, your star is starting to fade. Everyone's going to go after him. And so it's interesting because verse 25 at least makes you go, this seems to be a question about baptism. I think that's probably the purification side of the question. But it's asked in a way of which you kind of imply some level of jealousy. I think in the response, John is going to say, I am not jealous. In fact, this is exactly what should happen. But his response is very Jesus-like, which is he gets after the heart of their real question without really giving an answer of whose baptism is better. He doesn't go there. He simply gets you right back to, let me tell you again, who Jesus is. Because if you understand who Jesus is, you understand who you are, you will have a greater understanding of why this is happening. Because you understand who you are, you'll understand who John the Baptist is, who's just a man. And everyone else who's not from above is radically different than Jesus, who is from above. He's saying here, in short order, I think, that you don't fully understand to these disciples, John the Baptist saying to them, how the way or the way that the world works. Your view of yourself, wrong. Your view of John the Baptist, wrong. Your view of Jesus needs to be fixed. View of John's way too high. View of Jesus is too low. Your view of God, too low. And so looking at verse 27, you get into the meat of this text you begin to look and see these reminders of the way the world truly is. Who God is, who man is, who Jesus is, and who John the Baptist is. And that John is absolutely thrilled that his day is setting because Jesus is here. But it's a reminder for us of this reality, verse 27 through 30. Uh, we'll two reminders, and the first one being that we are not the main character. We're not even part of being, there's not multiple, there's one, and we're not the one it's all about. We've seen this lesson before, and we're going to see it again in verse 27. And so this question is asked, look at John the Baptist's response in verse 27. He says, John answered, 
And he doesn't give, like so many ways to John, the direct answer, but he gives the right answer. And he says here that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And if you've been with us this long, or you've been reading the Gospel of John, or you've been rereading the Gospel of John, you can't help but go, this is language we have seen before from the beginning, the very first verses of this Gospel. Jesus is in the beginning, right? He is heavenly. He is with God. He is there. And nothing can come unless it is given from above. A reminder that we are dependent beings again that need something outside of ourselves. And Jesus has said that already, right? How are you going to understand heavenly things if you keep looking at the world simply as a physical world? There's more going on than simply that is fleshly, but there is something going on that is cosmic, that is heavenly. And I don't just mean sky, upward, space, but spiritually. And we are dependent beings like young children who are not able to have anything, really, if you think about it, unless it is provided to us. Just like a little baby needs provision. He needs, she, he needs to be fed, protected. We likewise, if you think about it for a moment, and of course you live long and if you understand, every one, our body is going to break down. If we're going to live forever, it's not going to come from this life, Right? You're going to need someone to come from outside who is going to deal with sin and save our souls for eternity. And so he reminds them of this reality, this truth, a truth you see other places, like in James chapter 1, that every good thing given and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Even in that context, James 1, 17 and then verse 18, he reminds you of the sovereignty of God, that in the exercise of whose will? His will. He will bring us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creation. He's doing this for something bigger and grander. And goes on to say that you witnessed, look at verse 28, you yourselves, you saw, you are my witnesses, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. And he just simply reminds them, and even for us, it's a reminder that, remember back in chapter one, if you go back a couple pages, This issue of who is he? The Jews sent from the priests, Levites, chapter 1, verse 19. They ask him, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. And they ask, are you Elijah? No. Am I the prophet? No. And I think this is important because the answer he ultimately gives, who are you, is I am simply a voice crying in the wilderness. And that's an important voice. But it's not the most important voice as his next analogy will explain. So he reminds them, this is the purpose of my ministry. There's one coming after me who is someone that I'm not worthy of, even untying the straps of his sandals. And I love this analogy in verse 29. Because there's differences between a wedding, a Jewish wedding in the first century, than weddings today. But there are some similarities. And I think we can understand this. Because he's trying to illustrate this point. Not only that Jesus is something different, radically to me, that's something that comes from above, but also his role as a forerunner, his role as simply a voice crying in the wilderness. And why would he be upset if the thing that he is prophesying has come? 
And so he uses this analogy of something you know well in their culture. Like we've talked about weddings before, the wedding at Cana, how important um, the social period would be of everyone coming. The shame if the wedding doesn't go well. I kind of joke that when we run out of coffee, you know, really ran out of wine in chapter two, I go, the shame. You ran out of coffee on Sunday morning. It's embarrassing. But this would be an issue here of this honor-shame culture of if the wedding doesn't go well, who gets dishonor? Well, the best man probably doesn't have a lot of planning. The best man at my wedding did not have a lot to do with the wedding, but they did in ancient times. They were responsible to make sure the wedding goes well without a hitch. And most importantly, they're responsible for getting the bride and bringing the bride to the bridegroom. And so he says it in this way, verse 29, that he who has the bride is the bridegroom. It's pretty obvious, right? Who gets the attention on the wedding day? But there's a friend, the friend of the bridegroom. And you probably could say probably the best analogy for us would be the best man who stands and hears and rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's voice and this joy of mine has been made full. Well, in weddings, there's a lot of people giving a lot of help. We don't really have the best man doing something quite like that, but you do have someone who brings the bride, right? Everyone waits, and then here comes, at the very last, after everyone's come down, here comes the bride with dad. And the father walks the bride down, and the father gives the bride. You know, I just did a few weddings. You ask the question, you know, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then he usually says, I do, or his mother and I. And he goes and he sits down. And I bet you, if you think back to the last wedding you were at, you probably never gave a second thought to the father of the bride. You go, yeah, I don't know what he did. What was he wearing? I bet you don't know. Because he's not the focus. It's not to say he's not important, but he's not the focus of that wedding. And John's saying, in that same way, I'm not the focus of this ministry. I'm not the focus here. Jesus is the focus. And I'm greatly rejoicing because the focus of the wedding is this event of the bridegroom and the bride. And I'm simply here, just like the friend brings the bride. I'm showing you this is the bridegroom. And he's happy and he's joyful. Why? Because he's been part of that and he's seeing, say in the wedding context, his friends get married in this celebration of their great day. But he is simply not the focus at all. He doesn't have any expectations of taking center stage. And if you think about it, that would be pretty wild. I mean, I do kind of address usually the best man has the rings. And the only reason you remember him is if you forgot the rings or did something bad, right? But he's not trying to take away. You get the rings again and your focus goes right back to the couple and their vows being committed. And the bride or the, the friend of the groom or the best man, you see, has joy because of the experience of these others. He simply gets out of the way and says, the focus is not on me. It's not my day. It's their day in that context. And he's saying in this analogy, of course, Jesus is the bridegroom and he is simply making way and he is absolutely thrilled because what? It says in verse 29, because he has heard the bridegroom's voice. So it's in essence that John the Baptist has been waiting his whole life for this moment to go, I'm here. I'm preparing for this day. 
And when he sees Jesus and he finally understands who he is, not just his cousin, if you look at biblical, um, you know, the biblical record, but beyond that, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he hears that, he understands finally. And he says, my only job is to point other people to him. He has a voice, but it's a voice simply to point others. And now that this greater voice has come, it makes complete sense. Verse 30, there's a new voice, a different kind of voice. The one who everyone's been waiting for, the shepherd's voice, who the sheep respond to, as we'll see later in John chapter 10. And when he hears that voice, he says, I simply rejoice because I've been waiting. I'm more, I'm like everyone else. And he understands what it means, verse 30, that he, John the Baptist, must, or excuse me, he, Jesus, must increase. But John the Baptist, I, must decrease. And he doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get angry. In fact, the principle here is that when Jesus increases, our joy should increase as well. And that's exactly what John the Baptist does. He's more thrilled, more excited, more joyful. In fact, the way that describes it is his, his joy has been made full. It's been everything that he's been waiting for, his expectation. And now what I hope for is here and it is full and overflowing. So when Jesus becomes greater, you should be thrilled. This is the proper, the rightful response to what Jesus has been saying to Nicodemus all along, right? Nicodemus is going, I don't know, I'm scratching my head. I don't understand, new birth? John the Baptist seems to go, I understand exactly what he's coming for. Now again, does he have a full understanding? Uh, that's not the point, I don't think here, but the point is illustration. Contrast to Nicodemus, he knows this is the main character. This is the person who is the coming Messiah that we have been waiting for. John Piper called it this, looking at this text, that it's a joyful response of seeing Christ, a response to God's sovereign self-exaltation. He understands he's not the main character. We, just like John the Baptist, are servants of the king. We are not the king. What impact should that make on your life, on my life? Well, I think, number one, it should absolutely destroy ego. It should destroy our ego, whether it's in ministry, and that's the context here of John the Baptist. He's doing ministry, so I can identify. But he's not jealous that it's probably a little bit of a, I heard, you know, an exaggeration that all are coming to him. But the point being, are you excited about others' success, success in ministry and those things? And as long as it's about the true bridegroom Jesus, then I am excited and I should be excited. Take your ego and let it get out of the way. But that's not just from a pastor or a pulpit ministry and those things, but everyone who has any kind of ministry, whether it's in marriage, life, etc. This reality that it's not about you and it's not about me, it's about the work that God is doing has to always be brought to the forefront, not to take everything so personal, but rejoice in the ways that the gospel goes forth in the way that Christ is exalted. Because whenever that happens, the response should be, that's right. Christ should receive glory and exaltation and there should be joy that comes from it. And so it should destroy our ego and then it should increase our joy. Not only our joy, I think, when other success, because you kind of 
read a lot on that in this passage. He must increase, I must decrease. decrease. There's a level of an implication of just humble ministry. Knowing that we're not the main point. This isn't Josh's church. This is Jesus's church. But also I think there's a way in which it increases our joy because we no longer have to carry the same level of expectation. You can rejoice in others' success knowing that you actually couldn't have done it all on your own anyways. Because you are earthly. You are fleshly. You are limited. It doesn't take much to look outside of my little circle and just go, all right, look at Gretna. Can Josh minister to everyone in Gretna? No. Well, if you can't do that in Gretna, you probably can't do that in Omaha. Probably can't do it in Nebraska. Probably can't do it in the U.S. The world? Forget it. But I understand that that's not my role. There are many people who are serving the Lord and you are, anytime that happens, you, again, you are thankful and understand my role is simply narrow and focused for what God has given me. And the same is true for all of us, that you focus on what you can affect and what you can change and rejoice as you see others' success and you see Christ exalted in different ways. And every different moment where you see that you are decreased, you get out of the way and you let Christ be exalted, there's a way that that should correspond equally to our joy. In fact, even this phrase, as I said, you have this absolute nature to it of must, must, must. You must be born again. Son of man must be lifted up in the third must in chapter three. You must increase. But also you could say there's four, right? Because there's two uses here that I must decrease. And just in that reality alone, we understand that it's not about us. It's about what Christ is doing through us and through others. So understand our role. And we understand our role rightly. We understand the way the world truly is. John got that. His disciples are starting to understand it. Really throughout the gospel of John, we're going to understand rightly who Jesus is. It has to move you towards that purpose of believing. But why Jesus? Why not John? Why not another person? Well, the argument has been given already. And he expands upon this in verse 31 through 6 that it's because of who he is and that he is heavenly. And so we're reminded the world is this way in the way that we're not the end all be all, the main purpose, we're not the main character, but also that we need a savior, not just any savior. We need a savior that's not earthly, that's not from this world, but that is from heaven. And he's built that argument all the way from chapter one. I think he's kind of wrapping his arms at this point before going forward to explain. And as I said, there's some debate whether there's no quotations in the original. So is this John the Baptist's explanation, 31 and on, or is this, say, John, the author? I don't know if it matters too much because either way it's true. But you can see that theology bleed through of the early chapters. And he shows you that it's necessary. It must be that Christ is not just a man. He has to come from heaven. And by that, he's simply saying that he must be God. And who do you believe in? You believe that Jesus is the son of God. Again, he's moving all the way towards his culmination. Verse 31, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
Again, he's continuing on giving a response to say, if this is John the Baptist's words, or this is John's comment, either way, to say, John the Baptist is earthly. Go back to three. The flesh, verse six, chapter three, verse six. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the spirit is spirit. John's of the earth. Jesus is wholly different. He is from heaven, which is from above. And again, this testimony language, this witness language of what he has seen. I think this is talking here, verse 32, about Jesus. What Jesus has seen and heard, that is because he's not earthly, he's heavenly. What he has seen there, because of who he is. What he bears witness to by his signs. Say, we've already seen a few of them. We're going to see more in the Gospel of John. And yet this reality, which we saw in the chapter 1, is he goes to his own and his own don't receive him. But no one has received his witness, which of course goes back to you. Why? Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. They don't want to come out. They don't want to be exposed. They don't come to the light. They don't believe. But he has received his witness. Kind of why I probably lean towards this being more the writer John's comments because it seems to be his more, he's trying to almost make more of a movement of a gospel call to say, hey, let me remind you, but you can believe. You can believe his witness if you are born again. You can understand. He who has received his witness has set his seal. That is, he's affirmed this to be true, that God is true. For verse 34, he whom God has sent, it goes back to God, John three sixteen, right? This is his only begotten son, which he has sent into the world. You believe that to be true. You believe that he has sent the one, Jesus, who speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. I think there even is something in that. And, um, Jesus is unique. It's not to say that as believers, we don't receive the Spirit, but there's a way in which he's saying the uniqueness of the only begotten, the unique Son of God, that he is with God, yes, but he's distinct from God, and he is fully God, that he has the Spirit without measure. The Father, verse 35, loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. There's the uniqueness of the Son. And because... It's true that he's heavenly, that he is given the spirit without measure, that he is God's true, unique son. But the father loves the son, has given him all things. Then he has the capacity to do what no earthly being can do, which is he can die for sin. He can be a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice for our sin. And God can look and say, well done, my son. And he can raise him from the, ga- from the grave and be the first fruits in the resurrection. And then the reality, verse 36, that he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Sounds familiar, right? You get back to, not only do we know John three sixteen, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Life, but also 17, 18, 19. That if you don't believe, there is judgment. And maybe what's unique here even 
is that further explanation for us because in English, we have a term like belief and we simply go, well, I believe a lot of things. This is about believing this objective truth with an object of a person that it's beyond simply having, I believe, the facts about Jesus or some kind of intellectual assent. It's beyond that. In fact, it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And you would expect almost the next thing be, but he who does not believe will not see life. But if you look at verse 36, it doesn't say that. What it does say is that he who does not obey the Son will not see life. And in that way, I think he corresponds and says, to not believe is disobedience. And those who believe are going to obey. It's this issue of root and fruit. It's not to say you do anything on your own that causes you to be justified. No, you're justified because of what Christ has done. His work on the cross because of who he is, not who you are. But in John, this idea of belief, trust, faith, it goes beyond simply, I accept these facts, but I trust in this and it leads to action. There's got to be better illustrations than the old trust fall, right? But I remember that from high school, that idea of like, oh, it's not just that I believe you can catch me, but that it actually, are you willing to fall, right? There's a real trust that leads to action. Again, it's not the action that saves. Not that's not the point. It's simply to say, if you are a new creation, you've been born again, then you will have new desires. You'll have a love for heavenly things, as we sang earlier, love for Christ. But we need one from above. First Corinthians 15 says it simply this way, that it is written that the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So a lot of the similar language to John chapter 3. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's the whole context of the resurrection and the gospel and what we are saved to. But it's the same kind of language of you need something that's not just earthy, but something that is heavenly. And Christ is perfectly that. Adam only gives us one thing, and it's judgment. But Jesus, the second Adam, gives life. His testimony is Sure, it all points to that believing. Flip over to James chapter 2. They said you can see lots of places and you go, well, there's similar truth here. Why add it? And it's because further explanation and different reasons, different situations arise where they're addressing these similar issues in a way that help us understand. I think James, he's not contradicting Paul that salvation is by faith alone at all. But he is communicating this truth that if there is life, that is, if you're a new creature, that if you are a new tree, you will bear new fruit. You'll have new desires. And he does so in that way here. James chapter 2, which I think you probably know well. 
verse 14, it says, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? It's a bit of the way in which he's using this term here, and I think he is using it a little distinctively from Paul. But his point is, is, is simple, that if a brother or a sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Well, in this context, without going too far into this, but this would be the same idea that if outside of those doors or outside of those doors that you have a believer, um, a brother, a sister in Christ who is literally going to die of poverty. We don't see a lot of poverty in our world. Even there's a lot of, uh, you could say, social nets in those things. They didn't have those things. And this person is in desperate need and you simply see them because you don't have clothes, right? And you don't have house, heating, air conditioning. They don't have those things there. You don't have food. You don't get, we, we, we just take it for granted. You go to the fridge, get more food. Again, they wouldn't have those things. And if you look at this person who's about to die and you say, go in peace, be warm, be filled. He's simply saying, do you really love God? That's the question here. And so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Like he's after this issue that, look, he's not saying works save you at all. The issue of root versus fruit, but he's saying, if there's no fruit, I'm looking back at the root issue of what is this tree? And therefore he simply says, if someone will say you have faith and I have works, show me your faith that works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's what he's trying to explain there's going to be some fruit that is demonstrated that is an outflow because of that new birth that's birthed new desires, new loves. You see it over and over and over again in Scripture. And the call, going back to John chapter 3, is that you would believe, that you would trust, and then that would flow out into changing your life. Understanding the truth and reality, which we've seen that every good thing. Everything that we are given that is good comes from God. That the story is about him and what he is doing. And that we do need a savior because of who we are. And the only proper response is to believe and trust in that person, which is Christ and his work on the cross. So don't respond. Don't look at this like Nicodemus who's scratching his head going, well, I don't understand. Go, oh, I, I recognize there's no way to save myself. Simply you are at God's mercy. The illustration in uh, last week was to simply, like Israel who looked up at the bronze serpent, they saw, they believed. In the same way, you simply look to Christ, you cry out and you say, forgive me. And you put your faith and your trust in him. And then you live out your life. And this is almost a good analogy of not only does it have salvation, but again, as you walk out your growth, your sanctification, you live by the same maxim that John the Baptist lives by, which is from here on out, we understand Christ must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look to your word this morning and we see so many truths. We're reminded of things and things even further explained. Lord, it's so important to understand what you have made each one of us to be, what have you made us not to be, is not within our nature. 
We don't have an ability to save ourselves. As Paul says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive in Christ. We need resurrection. We need the heart transplant that the Old Testament speaks of, of which Jesus picks up on to say these things must happen. If you are to see the kingdom, you must be born again. He, Jesus, the Son of Man, must be lifted up, not only on the cross, but again exalted, seated at your right hand, raised from the dead. But there also, for us to see the kingdom, there must be a response, a belief and a trust that Jesus is truly God's Son, and knowing that we are simply those who are pointing to him. We're not the main event, but we are receiving our joy, our purpose by pointing others to you who is. We just ask this, Lord, now as we come to your table, as we think about who we are, we think about who you are, our needs, Lord, even now, we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness, but Lord, uh, may we receive those things even as we receive the truth of your word for encouragement to our hearts and our souls and our minds that they would renew us as we remind ourselves again of these truths of what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.